All right, hello everybody, and welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS. You're still just so freaking much Michael Ironside, speculative fiction, book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. So this is going to be the final installment in our discussion of Starship Troopers, the 1959 novel by Robert Heinlein. This episode, really the whole series, is brought to you thanks to a very generous commission by one of our Patreon supporters. And of course, also, as he has been for the first two episodes, Brandon Buddha is here with me. Brandon is my co-host on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, as well as Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast. So, Brandon, we talked about an awful lot last time, but somehow we still have got a lot left to cover. And I think we're going to close the pages on this book actually feeling like yet there is still a lot to be addressed. Well, the forums will be open for us to continue the conversations <laughs> about this novel. There is a lot to this novel, and I'm really excited to to wrap up our discussion of it in this episode. Right. And this is our third and our final episode on this book. The first episode, we looked at this novel as a piece of military science fiction, which I think mostly wound up just being, you know, the two of us swapping army stories, but hopefully someone enjoyed that. <laughs> and the second episode is where we started looking at it as political science fiction. This episode is going to continue to look at this novel as a work of political science fiction. We're going to be talking about pacifism and militarism here. We're going to be talking about moral philosophy, the criminal justice and also the economic system that Heinlein imagines in what amounts to be a kind of utopia that he's envisioning. Right. So lots to talk about, but let's start by talking about the philosophical underpinnings of this book with regards to moral philosophy. And the first thing we want to look at here is Heinlein's attitude towards pacifism. And I think the tack that Heinlein really takes here in terms of challenging a naive concept of pacifism is to explicitly challenge the idea that people like Gandhi or Martin Luther King were nonviolent. He characterizes their actions as using a kind of violent force, a force that though might not result in the deaths of others, like with guns, is violent nonetheless. And while these nonviolent resistances, these civil disobediences are certainly a demonstration of power and collective power in particular, in some sense, I don't think it's fair to lump peaceful resistance and civil disobedience in the same group as violence, which you know, connotes threats, menace, terror, the harming of another person in order to achieve your ends. Nonviolence as a means of resistance, especially when enacted as a group, is really a refusal to comply with what one believes to be an unjust situation and to make it known that you find it unjust and unacceptable to the civil authorities. And what happens then is that you force the people who are using or wielding power improperly to reveal the underlying injustice through their actions against those who are peacefully standing against them. Now, this isn't to say this works all the time. This does not work and cannot work, perhaps, in a society that has abandoned all pretense of justice and the good like, say, the Third Reich. Like, you can't imagine any amount of peaceful resistance that would reveal the injustice of the actors within that regime to come to terms with their own evil activity or to be overpowered by a group who is saying that you're acting unjustly. If you've read 
ordinary men, you can see how standing up to the actors who agreed to participate in this regime are poisoned by the rot of the, in the overarching system. And so resistance requires perhaps violence in, in that case. So I'm saying there are occasions maybe where violent force must meet violent force or violent resistance must meet violent force. But I think the broader idea behind pacifism or nonviolence behind nonviolent resistance to injustice is that it forces us to examine our fantasies, our imaginative life, where we should probe ourselves to see if there is any part of us that wishes our society could be more unjust than it is or more evil than it is. So we have an opportunity to become violent. So it's in part about rooting out the violent wishes in ourselves. And if you undertake a practice to examine yourself in this way, you might become surprised by how often you wish for an opportunity to become violent. And, you know, just an aside here, as I wrap up this, uh, brief uh, overarching view of pacifism here as I'm presenting it before we get into the text. I do want to say that I think that the whole kind of modern zombie apocalypse trend with The Walking Dead and its spinoff shows and why zombies are popular today is in part uh, part of this wish fulfillment fantasy for the permission, a society that gives us now permission to do violence to one another because we have a class of people who are now undead or whatever. Anyway, let's examine the uh, I'm going to take a brief break here, Glenn, so you can respond, and then we'll examine how Heinlein thinks pacifism works or should be rooted out of society in Starship Troopers. Heinlein has a real interesting relationship with the value of pacifism. I mean, we we just talked about Hobbesianism. We just you know, talked about Thomas Hobbes, his, his very pessimistic view of human nature as being inherently uh, competitive and maybe even inherently violent, inherently selfish. And I I think that Heinlein would agree that humans actually have a a violent impulse or an impulse to do violence to other humans that is actually rooted in their nature. And there seems to be something of that here in what the military is actually doing about one of its, its, its functions in society. Yeah, I think that's right. It's to give an outlet for the violent nature that I think lies in some level within all of us, uh, though I'm happy to be proven wrong about that. I do think uh, people do think that violence can be a means by which they solve problems. And that is that is a part of our nature. But let's look at the text now. Um, there are a few examples. Uh, I guess the first thing we should look at is how Heinlein has kind of edited the Geneva Convention to, to allow chaplains to fight. As we discussed in our last episode, having chaplains fight is a violation of the Geneva Convention. So is killing clergy members of any faith. And that's not to say that all chaplains or Christians, for that matter, is is the case often in America, in the U.S. military. That's not to say that they're pacifists or inherently nonviolent or that theologians can't fight or be part of a resistance effort, as we saw in the 20th century in the case uh, specifically of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But the general idea behind not having, but by not having cha- chaplains wield weapons and kill others, is that religious leaders are, in one sense, supposed to embody higher ideals than maybe the more base requirements of existence. 
that are often imposed on us, the, the struggle to survive in certain cases that requires us to be violent, the fight over resources, the fight over land, property, all of these things that might call us, call to our baser nature. Religious leaders are supposed to embody a higher ideal. And Heinlein seems to have a real issue with that on some level. What's your sense, Glenn, of how you think Heinlein is characterizing religious leaders in this world? Of all the things that rankled me <laughs> in this book, this was actually probably the biggest, this idea of chaplains fighting and the idea that the the thing that, that a chaplain is really there to do is actually just to bless the weapons, to actually confer religious blessing on the killing that you're about to do. And this actually happens. We see this in the opening chapter of the book where Rico's unit is jumping down to this planet in order to terrorize the local population. And so it's really even just to bless their act of terrorism. And that really uh, does not sit well with me. That is not what I think religious leaders do. That is not what they're for. And that's certainly not why there are chaplains in the military. Something we talked a little bit about last time is, in fact, what are chaplains for? And, and one of the things chaplains are for is actually to act as uh, mental health care for people who are uh, undergoing these extraordinarily stressful situations uh, in combat, uh, some not in combat as well, but just extraordinarily stre the, the extraordinary stressors that service members face to give them someone to talk to about those things. That's one of the things that chaplains are for. Chaplains, of course, are uh, also, at least in their, their initial conception, of course, there to perform religious rites for for people right for whom those those rituals matter uh, and that there are religious rules about how frequently those uh, need to be performed and so on it's a little less like that in in the american military of the you know the early 21st century of course but those are the things that chaplains are for and that is why they don't fight it's really this it's really the same reason that also in the geneva conventions medical workers are off limits that you don't go blowing up field hospitals either, that that is off limits. The chaplains are considered to be really in this class of humanitarians who are attached to the military. And Heinlein's dismissal of that was actually fairly offensive to me. Yeah, to me as well. I didn't see much evidence in this novel of Heinlein thinking about the people and the types of people whose job it is to represent the best of humanity to others, the best ideas, whether they're religious or philosophical or whatever. It's a very myopic society in some sense that there's no, though there is the concept of self-sacrifice, the concept of nonviolence is not <laughs> celebrated in the society of choosing a different path because it can be reduced to violence in the minds of these instructors. And that's something that really jumped out to me in this in this novel as well, is there's not one character who was a counterexample to a different way of thinking or being than what Heinlein has chosen to represent as his core views in this book. One of the things that I do want to point out about this, lest we paint with too broad of a brush and maybe hold Heinlein to task for something he didn't mean, though I think you and I still are going to object to this, uh, but we need to be clear that Heinlein does not ever show us humans fighting other humans here. And we talked last time about the, the othering that is going on here and how it's quite clear that in Heinlein's conception of encountering intelligent alien species, 
we simply are not going to recognize them as people, that they are not going to fit into our moral scheme. And so doing violence to them might not actually be doing violence to them, right? It might not actually be, this might not be a violation of uh, a chaplain's or any cleric's religious principles, which, all, you know, almost all of which forbid killing, right? I mean, it's just, <laughs> you know, almost every religion says, hey, don't kill other people. And so this is part of why clerics don't kill other people. By cha- or, or, I'm sorry, this is part of why chaplains don't kill other people, is that their religion says not to do that. It's a religious prescription. But I think, right, for Heinlein, the bugs aren't other people, and maybe the skinnies aren't either. And so there's an exemption. So we might wonder uh, if there was some kind of uh, civil war that broke out, uh, you know, some kind of separatist movement out somewhere else in the galaxy, and Rico's unit was was sent to uh, to fight other humans, humans fighting for their independence to establish their own state, uh, maybe one where only teachers have political citizenship or something. I don't know what that would, you know, something like that. I wonder if the chaplains would fight at that point. Well, let's talk a little bit about this, you know, human system, the why they even have a military if there are no humans left to fight. Rico's father is pretty much against the military. He's a very wealthy manufacturer and businessman. And when he's trying to talk Johnny Rico of joining the federal service, he says this, we've outgrown wars. What is this so-called federal service? Parasitism, pure and simple, a functionless organ, utterly obsolete, living on the taxpayers, a decidedly expensive way for for inferior people who otherwise would be unemployed to live at public expense for a term of years and then give themselves heirs for the rest of their lives. Is that what you want to do? So Heinlein is using this character who ends up joining the military service, who Johnny (laughs) becomes in charge of on some level. Uh, to question just what the functional role of the military is in a society that is done with wars. And I, and I have to say that the line of reasoning used by Rico's father here is rooted in a very hopeful view of humanity. I think that it's just a specious claim to make that just because there are no wars or conflicts now, there won't be wars again. And especially when you have an interplanetary government that seems to be so fixed on the movement of material goods, on resources, on expansion, that nobody would fight over this, over these resources in the future. So it makes sense to have a standing army because it, just because there's no war now doesn't mean people won't be fighting over, I don't know, some uranium deposit on an asteroid or something at some point. So from you know a purely civic point of view, I don't think Rico's father's argument makes sense. Having a stand, standing army is a good idea. But Rico's father isn't wrong here in suggesting that joining a branch of the military is an opportunity that is aimed at and more often reserved for those members of society at a lower so at a lower socioeconomic status than folks who are very wealthy. And what Rico's father is demonstrating here is that, you know, if one's wealth can insulate you from even knowing or hearing about war, violence, struggle, strife, issues of survival, issues of poorly meted out resource of poorly dealt out resources, then it it is a large leap for one to think that such programs are necessary. Yeah, there's a lot going on here with with Rico's father. I mean, the 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 way that he phrases the question is is in these pretty stark absolute terms, but you know, he might really mollify that if he were 
pressed on it. He might concede that, yes, we should keep a small standing military so that we have a core of professional soldiers and, and sailors and so on who know how to do this. And then in the event of a war can teach other people how to do that when we need more people to do that and so on. Because really, I think Rico's father here is voicing uh, an opinion or a position perhaps in American political discourse in the 1950s about why do we, why are we continuing to maintain the military that we used to fight a two front global war in the 1940s? It's been 10 years. Why are we still having a military of that size? In fact, why are we expanding the military? What is the point of entering into this cold war with the Soviet union and so on? And tying that to how freaking expensive it is. And hey, guess what? It is freaking expensive. We talked earlier about the percentage of the uh, budget, the American budget every year that is spent on the military. Depending on how you calculate that, it's anywhere from one half to one third or one third to one half of the budget. Even if you cut that expenditure in half, then someone like Rico's father would save 25% on his tax bill. And maybe that would be true for all of us. And I think we would all like to save money on our tax bill, right? That's everybody would always like that. And so the question of do we need a military quite as large and expensive as we actually have seems to be a, a, a legitimate question. It's a question that people are asking all the time in American in the American political discourse, or at least used to. I think they're asking it less now than uh, was true in the, the end of the 20th century. Uh, and certainly, actually, I was when I was in the army, uh, we were we were in a real drawdown phase because the Cold War had ended. Of course, now that's not true. We're just fighting endless wars all over the planet again at this point. So I think Rico's father here is maybe making a bit of a straw man argument or Heinlein is having to make a bit of a straw man argument there where there's a more reasonable position in the middle there. But I think what actually is more interesting to me is, is the thing that you gravitated towards more too, Brandon, is the opposition to welfare. Like, yeah, the military is a form of welfare. That's what the U.S. military is. It does other things too, but it is also a form of welfare and that's fine. Yeah, it's also hugely important in subsidizing the middle class as well because of all the contracting jobs and all the logistics jobs and all the stuff that needs to take place. Right. That's what I mean by welfare, right? Is is that it props up the, the entire economy is propped up by military expenditure is how we have these types of jobs and why we have uh, an interstate system and all of that, right, is, is this military expenditure. And all of that is social welfare, promoting social mobility, upward social mobility, and then I have no problem with that. And I think that if Rico's father really were shown like some detailed spreadsheets about how, you know, Keynesian economics works, that he also wouldn't have a problem with that. It's really interesting to me. I mean, this idea of parasitism of people who would be unemployed otherwise, these kinds of pejorative phrases that Rico's father tosses out here makes me believe that I, Rico's father would f start to find a reason to complain if his tax dollars went to people who weren't quote unquote earning it, right? Whether or not you're a pacifist or you agree with the military, we need to belong to a society. Society, society needs to organize itself in a way that gives people an opportunity to derive some sort of meaning from achievement and accomplishment. And the more people that are withheld from that, the worst society you're going to have. And so the military is at least an opportunity for some members of our society to at least get some sort of meaning from their labor. If we replaced 
all of the people who need to go into the military for various reasons, because our society hasn't provided them with what they need and it's a good opportunity to go to college or whatever, with a social safety net program, with welfare, universal basic income, something like that, Rico's father would still complain because he would not agree with the way that people are spending their time and perhaps earning their money through other means. He seems to believe that people who aren't like him don't have the same need to gain meaning from work in life, which is, I guess, I guess that's how the wealthy people think of other Americans. I'm not quite sure. It sure feels that way sometime. But I really do think that the military is one way that our society provides an opportunity for meaningful achievement and accomplishment. And that to withhold that from the class of people who it most appeals to without replacing with something else in order to appease the wealthy would be a huge mistake in our society. I, I agree. Even just thinking only about the United States, right? The GI Bill benefits for education and home ownership are extremely important. The network of Veterans Affairs, hospitals, and, and other healthcare facilities is also hugely important, not just in caring for veterans or offering something to veterans in lieu of not making a whole lot of money when you're actually out soldiering. Uh, important for those things, but also important for all of the other people who work at those things, work at universities, work in real estate, work in healthcare, have jobs because of the funding of those activities for veterans. And it's supremely important and is, in fact, really why those laws, why those institutions were created, why the GI Bill was passed. It was really the last component of the New Deal for soldiers coming home from the Second World War. And there was tons of opposition to it, of course. Enrico's father is clearly a stand-in for exactly that type of person. Exactly. Enrico's father doesn't have any sort of commitment actually to pacifism. His commitment is really more towards punishing people in a sense who don't have the same opportunities that he's had. And uh, that that's a strain I'd like to see kind of addressed more, more regularly in our society. Uh, Heinlein does an okay job of addressing it in this book, but of course he thinks violence is the answer to all of this stuff. And that, that kind of takes us to our next point here uh, where in another history and moral philosophy course, Dubois suggests that violence never settles anything. He says violence, naked force, has settled more issues in history than has any other factor, and the contrary opinion is wishful thinking at its worst. Now, I think we can say with some definitiveness that violent domination of in order or control of any sort of problem is a short-term solution at best. And I think Heinlein's argument here, just which isn't an argument, it's a premise would be stronger if it didn't feel as though this novel were advocating for a life that is fulfilled and full of violence and gore as much as it feels like this book is. If violence must be used in conflict like a war, the goal is not continued violence. It's to end violence, not to keep violence going eternally. Maybe it settles something. But the goal is not continued violence. And Heinlein throughout this novel seems to make it feel as though that's the case. 
Plus, violent conflict is only one part of settling any sort of problem to begin with. The impacts of destroying another country or their economy or another people group is devastating and long-lasting and builds long-term resentment against the force that has occupied or destroyed that country or people group. Which is why we live in a system that has taken a lot of time in the second half of the 20th century to attempt to build diplomatic channels and use soft power and other sorts of negotiations in order to avoid violence. And this brings me to another point with this, the way that this statement is coupled with the types of weapons that are used in this book. I have a very hard time with Heinlein's casual use of nuclear weapons as like a cool technological advancement of future warfare. We live in a world now where the extinction of mankind could actually be a result of war. None of us can maybe really imagine that as a reality, but that does not mean that it can't happen. And Heinlein's reliance on technology to solve the problems of a nuclear attack, like the infantry soldier suits, for instance, or it never being used in human populations, doesn't really seem to be in balance with the fact that most humans actually don't have access to this technology to protect them. For instance, Johnny, Johnny's mother dies in this kind of devastating nuclear-like attack in Buenos Aires. And this is kind of a classic feature of the Hero's journey, you know, the, one of the parents dies and that kind of propels the kid onward. But it's essentially the technological destruction of a place. And yet there's no critique of the use of technology in war in this novel. I mean, we went to war with Iraq over the false intelligence that they had weapons of mass destruction. And we're constantly bickering with Iran over the development of uh, a nuclear power program because we believe they want to build a nuclear weapon. So... Civilization destroying weaponry is not cool. It can't be what Heinlein has in mind when he thinks about violence being a settling, a way to settle issues. And maybe it would, though. I don't know. Maybe the violent use of nuclear weapons would ultimately settle all of the problems of humanity, including its existence, if you're, <laughs> if you're into that sort of thing. But I just think this is such a muddled notion in this novel. Well, this is where we can get back to that notion of semantics for sure. It is a dumb thing to say that violence never settled anything, but Heinlein is willfully misunderstanding that sentiment, or he's not understanding it as a sentiment. He's taking it literally by saying, well, no, some issues have in fact been settled by violence, but what the sentiment of that, the spirit of that phrase is, violence is not a good long-term solution to problems. And I think actually we probably mostly agree that that is true most of the time, that even if you can have a solution that is rooted in violence, but that a nonviolent approach would be likely to yield a better long-term solution. That's what's meant there. And I think most of us agree with that sentiment as well. But Heinlein is here thinking completely in terms of total war. He's thinking entirely in terms of the Second World War and the, the Korean War as well, where war is not a matter of two armies uh, settling a, a, a dispute violently on, a empty, on an empty field somewhere. Even though he invokes Waterloo here, he's not thinking about Waterloo. He's thinking about Nagasaki, Hiroshima, Dresden, Tokyo. He's thinking about dropping nuclear weapons. He's thinking about firebombing places. He's thinking about utterly destroying the civilization of your opponent. And frankly, he's thinking about extermination. That is what 
the that is the goal of this war against the arachnids it's not to beat them into surrender it is to destroy them it is really to exterminate them and the assumption is that that is also the goal of the arachnids right is to destroy to exterminate humanity and that that is what war is for and heinlein's ideas here break down unless we're in a world of total war right if we're in a world of limited war if we're in a world of napoleon versus wellington then i don't think his ideas bear bear out they don't think they hold water in that case they only work in this total war capacity and that has to do with what we were talking about earlier with kind of the violent fantasy behind this novel in general that has to do with kind of this section of pacifism is that in a sense this statement is a kind of wish that total war would be the case so that we can be violent. Uh, it's you know, it's not of course that can be quibbled with, but this novel is a celebration of total war and violence, and it's not a critique of it in on any level. Well, there's uh, a few more things to talk about here uh, in in this kind of section of of pacifism that that we brought up. Uh, the last thing I really want to say is. Heinlein's approach to the moral difference between a soldier and a civilian, which will get us talking about morality a little bit. Here's what uh, the textbook answer is, essentially. Uh, difference, the difference between a soldier and a civilian in terms of the moral difference lies in civic virtue. A soldier accepts personal responsibility for the safety of the body politic of which he is a member, defending it, if need be, with his life. The civilian does not. To me, there's there's just a, a real issue with this statement, which is to say that there are more civic virtues than losing your life for your city state, your nation. Um, you know, what do great artists or architects or those who create beauty in the world contribute to our civic life, to being a civic virtue? Wouldn't we say someone like John Muir, whose goal it was to preserve as much of the beautiful land and natural wilderness of this country for public use as somebody who accepted personal responsibility for the body politic? You know, that's not for the safety of the body politic, but it is for the benefit of the body politic, just as safety is. I think by tossing the word safety in here, Heinlein is rigging the game a little bit about just what civic virtues are. Great ideas and great actions uh, by people who have changed the world, you know, people who like gave us the Beatitudes like Jesus Christ or Martin Luther King, who led the civil rights protests, exam are examples of people who accepted personal responsibility to improve the body politic that accepted the consequences and impacts of their actions and choices personally. Are they not also responsible? Are good ideas also not responsible for the safety of the body politic? What about lawmakers who make punitive laws to punish injustices and who take responsibility for that? Are they not also responsible for the body politic and through these laws make life safer for others for as many as they can? This is just another example, I think, of a very specious argument made by Heinlein here. Violence is not the only way to ensure safety and well-being in a functional society. Yeah, I think for Heinlein here, what really matters is the cost or potential cost of these different types of service that you're bringing up, right? The legislator, the 
educator, John Murr. I love John Murr. Actually reading a book about John Murr. We have a little board book about John Murr that uh, Finch and I are reading together uh, over and over again. There's a beaver in it he really loves. Anyway, total <laughs> aside there. Um, the, but these sorts of, uh, these other types of people who are exhibiting civic virtues, no doubt uh, that you bring up, Brandon, do not have the expectation that they might die in the performance of those duties. And so for Heinlein, I think that's that's where there is this distinction, uh, this moral distinction, where one of them, uh, the the military person, is elevated above these, these other people. Uh, I'm not sure that you and I share that value, but there is at least some kind of moral calculus here that Heinlein is using. Yeah, it has to do with the idea that sacrifice, the choosing of sacrificing your individual life which is to say the end of all future potential that you of good you could do is the highest good but i just i just don't even agree with that i mean a, a sentiment that is found throughout this novel is that dying for one's country is the greatest thing that one can do and and this is a really difficult topic to even address certainly the the courage it takes to be willing to lose one's life for the sake of certain abstractions, for the promotion of certain abstract ideas is commendable. And courage actually means exactly this, the willingness to fall in battle. But it's not clear how you would formulate an argument that dying for one's country is the greatest sacrifice that you can make. It's the most costly because you can do nothing after that. But having the courage to create a better world for yourself and others doesn't require dying. It does require self-sacrifice. It really requires a, a, the ability to live within complex and messy systems that may not always reward us for that striving or to live with the failures of our ability to create a better world for ourselves and others. Uh, striving in the face of all that failure in, in life is much harder to do and maybe much more rewarding at times. We get to live to try again, though it can be more devastating as well. But I wonder, you know, sometimes if having the courage to face the impact of uh, and consequences of your actions is is more admirable and maybe a, a, a nobler ideal than getting hit by a stray machine gun bullet on a battlefield. I, I think that the wish to die for one's country or the hope that that is the most glorious thing you can do is a kind of naive desire that puts all of the faith in the organizers of your society that they will use the outcome of whatever you've participated in for the enlargement of justice and goodness. But I think that that has hardly proven to be the case when confronted with the history of warfare in the 20th and 21st centuries. And to be clear, you know, you and I, as former service members, former soldiers, we we have lost comrades. We've had comrades of ours in uniform lose lose their lives, uh, and they deserve to be honored. And everyone deserves to be honored. Everyone who has given their life in that type of service, for sure. But the idea that there is that the idea that that type of service is somehow elevated over other types of of civic service, service to one's country is actually is in fact a pretty dangerous idea, an idea that 
tends to lead to more people dying, not less people dying. And this is where, uh, in the last episode, we we brought up very briefly uh, Wilfred Owen, and I, I promised that we would address his poem. And this is this is where we really need to do that. Uh, Wilfred Owen was a, a British uh, poet who served in the First World War. Uh, in fact, died in the the First World War, but was publishing poems or writing poems during the war, sending them home, you know, in, in the mail, uh, and they were being published. And he has a number of really famous poems, but one of them is called Dolce et Decorum Est, which is uh, Latin for uh, It is Sweet and Glorious. That title there is half of a line in a Latin poem uh, by the Roman poet Horace, uh, someone who was active as a very uh, important poet at the end of the fall of the Roman Republic, the end of that century-long period, and perhaps more so really at the beginning of what comes next, what we call the the Roman Empire. He wrote this poem to honor the soldiers who had died in a, a recent war, uh, and it's, it's a poem about how sweet and glorious it is to give your life for your country. Wilfred Owen's poem is about how that's not true. Uh, his t- use of that title there is meant to be ironic, uh, because then he the poem is entirely about depicting the death of one of his comrades while he uh, choked to death on chlorine gas uh, in a, a German gas attack. And, and Owens's point there is that it is not sweet to watch someone asphyxiate on chlorine gas. There's nothing sweet about that experience. And really what he's getting at there is that as a member of the British elite, uh, Owens was an, it was an officer, as a member of the British elite, he and all of his comrades and all of his friends, everyone in his life had been raised in their educational system, being told over and over and over again that their duty is to be the officers and custodians of the British Empire, and that the best thing that they could do with their life is to die in a war fighting to expand the British Empire. And they all grew up believing that because, hey, if you tell eight-year-olds something, they will believe it, right? And that is what their life has been. All of their education had been leading up to this point, leading up to the belief that this is going to be the best thing you can do with your life. Owens got there, saw it, and recognized that it was just not true, that it wasn't true at all. And this poem is a really beautiful, but also really cutting way to address this society, this and in particular, this education system that was based entirely around the propaganda of getting boys to want to choke to death on chlorine gas or die from a bayonet wound or get shot in the face, to want to do that. And I think that Every one of us today would be really uncomfortable with an education system that did that to our children, right? That told our children that the thing that they're for is to get stabbed with a bayonet or choke on gas. We don't want our children to feel that way. We don't want them to grow up that way. But that is what Heinlein is advocating here, right? That's what happens when you make this kind of dichotomy about, mili- about military service versus other types of service to your community. Heinlein also completely ignores the long-term like after effects of fighting in a war. Uh, there's a British detective series I really love called Endeavor. Uh, there's an episode where one of the main characters who fought in World War II runs into an old uh, lover that he had in Italy. And it's a, it's a heartbreaking episode. He was married. It's his anniversary. So the dramatic elements of this episode are wonderful. 
it all the episode also addresses uh, suicide of those who experience trauma in war, and the sense of honor that this character has for this woman who has decided to take her life. He says that they have a phrase for it, which is to say that they died of wounds and not all wounds kill you right away. And Heinlein is not engaging at all with the type of wounds that that injure, but take a long time to kill. That is to say, post-traumatic stress disorder, alcoholism, other things like that. I think that phrase died of wounds is a, is a beautiful way to honor soldiers who have not been able to come away from, from the battlefield. And uh, I, I also wanted to point that out here, that Heinlein ignores the trauma that is war uh, and seems to only celebrate the enjoyment of violence and the desire to do violence and the desire to do violence and the camaraderie of the military and the fraternity, which are all there. It's all a part of it. But once you're out, once Rico's out, once all these citizens are out, what do they do? And Heinlein tries to get around this in the novel by showing us all these wounded officers and wounded service members who didn't die. They didn't make a real estate deal. They just got blown to bits, but technology has provided them with limbs and all this other stuff. And they wear their technological arms and legs and stuff out in public, but masquerade as being broken to dissuade people from joining the military. When in fact, the way Heinlein writes this does the exact argument. If I lose an arm, it won't be that big of a deal because we have the technology to fix it. And it's just a real difficult strain of and motif in this novel that is really hard for me to encounter now. Yeah. And Heinlein wrote this book, of course, long before IEDs were one of the chief ways that American soldiers and, and Marines in particular are going to experience violence in uh, combat situations, uh, devices that tend not to kill, but that do cause lots of, of damage to limbs, to internal organs, and so on, and send you home with the, with this type of wounds. And we know that this takes a toll, but Heinlein here is showing people who act as if they actually think that they're better off for having lost three of their four limbs in in combat. And that's misleading uh, at, at best. At best, it is. At best, it's misleading. <laughs> well, let's move. Let's move on now uh, to talk a little bit about some of the moral philosophy that is explicit in this text. Well, we can start by looking at uh, the statement that humans have no moral instinct, and this is the argument that is made here: humans have no moral instinct; rather, they have a cultivated conscience. We acquire moral sense. Moral sense is an elaboration of the instinct to survive. Uh, Some of that was quoted from the text. I'm going to go on here and and summarize some of this, uh, which is to say that basically we can solve all moral problems by looking at the hierarchy of the way we resolve our self-interest, our love of family, and the duty to our country, and then the responsibility toward the whole, whole human race. And then Heinlein here riffs on... Uh, the words of Christ is, is given to us in the book of John by saying that greater love hath no man than a mother cat dying to defend her kittens, which is a riff on the f- statement. 
Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. It's Christ uh, talking to his disciples. And the the history and moral philosophy instructor here says that if you understand this phrase, greater love hath no man than a mother cat dying to defend her kittens, you'll understand all of morality, basically. So based on Heinlein's definition of morality here, of not having a moral instinct, he's not, strictly speaking, wrong. I think he's right to point out that our morality, especially as they come to us as norms, are formed and cultivated by the various communities that we belong to and participate in, whether those communities have an explicit definition of the good or not. We can infer what will keep us accepted and in good standing in the group. Right action, then, moral activity, is that which binds us and provides us with a sense of belonging within that community that we belong to or aspire to belong to. What Heinlein doesn't really point out here is that we often participate in competing communities with competing moralities as well. This is kind of what modernism in literature is about, or the movement, which is to say we're fragmented in a sense, or with the destruction of big institutions or the loss of big institutions our communities have become more and more fragmented and ask different things of us. Heinlein skips over things in this definition though, uh, of the hierarchy of, I don't know what gives us, uh, what cultivates our morality. He skips over things like school, peer groups, local interests, local communities and organizations. He goes right from love of family to duty to country. And he doesn't address the fact that our commitment to a group that is somewhere between our family and our country might cause us to act in violation to the moral norms that both were cultivated by our family and that our country's ethical norms may ask of us. But I will say here that I we do develop, quote unquote, moral instincts or intuition by the process of socialization. And this is can be demonstrated by the fact that I think it would be very difficult for us to write down every code of conduct or norm that we follow unreflectively that provide us with that sense of belonging to an in-group, but we follow them nonetheless. So that's at least a kind of social instinct that has a morality-shaded hue to it. Well, this, uh, again, is this... Hobbesianism here, right? This goes back to Thomas Hobbes and his real pessimistic view of humanity, of human nature as being inherently competitive, uh, inherently uh, prone to, to conflict rather than inherently cooperative. This idea that we're just bad, that we're inherently bad, right? And this was something that was of real interest to people in the, the middle part of the 20th century. Uh, look, right, we talked already, Heinlein lived through the Depression, lived through the Second World War. Heinlein's not the only person in the 1950s to have a bleak and negative view of humanity and human nature. And there were all sorts of, of social scientists of, of different sorts, psychologists, sociologists, uh, philosophers also, of course, doing work on trying to understand what human nature is. And in fact, trying to see what a human would be like if that human were to grow up in a natural environment as opposed to in civilization. 
this is actually where we get the novel Lord of the Flies from, is exactly drawing on this type of thinking of what happens if these kids, uh, these teenagers have to uh, form a society of their own on this island without civilization, without adults there to guide them. And of course, right, the answer is bad. Badness is what's going to happen. And the social scientists were doing experiments with kids or often with primates where you raise them in isolation and do all sorts of other things to keep them away from uh, a society, keep them away from a community and see what happens. Uh, People were also really interested in how language works too and what type of language would people develop if they were raised without exposure to a family or to a community, to a society of people speaking around them and so on. And this is really the type of thinking that Heinlein is drawing on here, right? This this idea of what would a person be like if that person were raised without any kind of society, any kind of community. And in Heinlein's conception, that person would be more like an animal than like a person. But the thing is that Being raised in isolation, being raised away from a society is not actually the natural condition of a human. That's right. That's 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 actually an abusive state right there. Right. The natural condition of humans is to be in a group, to be in uh, not just a family, but in fact, in a, a community of several extended family networks. That is how humans existed in nature before we invented civilization. It'd be like trying to do this to like a bee or an ant. Uh, which, of course, right, that's who the bugs are with the arachnids in this book, right? To take to separate one of the workers and be like, let's figure out what this thing is really like by uh, taking a worker baby and watching it in isolation and see how it functions. That, But that's not how it's supposed to function. That is not a natural environment. But we really had this sense in the middle of the 20th century that all society was a sort of artifice, was kind of a, a an artificial construction that was somehow not the natural state of being a person, which is itself actually a real bleak concept. It certainly is. Isolation from others is the worst punishment besides death that we have to punish members of a group. It's you know what we do to prisoners if they're misbehaving in prison, uh, things like that. Uh, ostracization is a method by which communities can punish members in that community. Um, so yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine what it means for a human being to have a moral instinct apart from other humans. They would certainly act. We could might think in like a self-interested way at some point, but to, to examine a child and see what their moral instinct or intuition is, wouldn't really yield any meaningful results because they're not fully participating in anything yet, except as a, as the kind of the lowest member of a family organization, uh, maybe in school you'd see, and you know, school is a place where kids work out what it means to say something horrible to another human being and see that look of hurt on their face and then feel empathy and decide not to do that again, um, to, to get into a fight and realize, Hey, that sucked for everybody. <laughs> I don't want to do that again. So, you know, that's, that's a, a, a way by which we, we socialize, but it's not clear to me exactly at what point it matters that we have moral instincts in our development. We do develop them. And, We do that by socializing in multiple different communities that in our current civilization compete for our loyalty in often troubling and difficult to figure out ways. 
Well, it's important for Heinlein because he does have this Hobbesian worldview that we are all inherently selfish and that human society is competitive by by nature unless we have a strong authority keeping all of that in check. And in some ways, I mean, this is actually the bedrock of everything else that Heinlein is presenting here in this book. Right. And he's also ignoring the fact that people have consciences, which might be a highly developed sense of moral intuition that comes with experience, but that we can be authorities to ourselves when we violate moral norms. And we ought to listen to our bodies, our brains, our emotions when they're telling us we've really uh, violated uh, a, a moral norm or an ethical system. Well, let's move on here and look at what Heinlein thinks the basis of morality is. He makes a claim here in the novel that the basis of all morality of duty, and this is part of a section of, of another monologue where, you know, Heinlein's really going off the rails here. He's really on, you know, he's really just mad at all these kids with like long hair <laughs> who sit on their stoops smoking weed all day instead of getting a job or something like that, you know, or any kind of rights activist perhaps too. Um, but I really want to challenge Heinlein on this point, even though he's not here to defend himself, uh, by asking the question of, like, if the basis of all morality is duty, what are the things that motivate us to have duties or to respond to the call to perform a duty in the first place? Part of it, at least, is the pressure to belong to a community. The things we ought to do grant us access to belonging in communities. But also, love is something that informs our duty, whether it's love of self or love of others. Uh, Kant, Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, has a definition of love, which is this. It's to do your duty with joy, to meet your obligations to others and to yourself with joy. And that, if we do that, it demonstrates to us that what we are doing is perhaps an act of love. And if we're to take this definition, I think it's better to say that the basis of all morality is love. It's the joyful enacting of duty. Our need to belong to some kind of community, though, can be used against us in, term, in the terms specifically to our moral formation, and I think the way that love in, informs it. This happens with radicalization and cult initiation and things like that. But I think Heinlein is on some level suggesting that merely performing a duty is moral activity. And I don't think that's strictly speaking the case, though it's not a bad place to start. If you don't know what to do, if you're not motivated by love, doing your duty is a good thing to do. It's, a, it's an inherent good. Understanding your duties is a much better idea and why you should do them and why who they benefit is also a good thing. You know, recognizing that everything that we enjoy in this world or need does have a time or a labor or a material cost to it is also a thing to reflect upon that could benefit us in a lot of way. ways. It could help us determine what sorts of choices are actually good in relation to what we ask of others in making those choices. So I'm not saying that Heinlein is like way off the mark here. We do have duties to others and to ourselves. But the question of what motivates us to perform those duties what gives us joy when we perform those duties, 
really reveals to us what we love, as does what we are willing to sacrifice in the enacting of those duties. Um, But this whole section here, I'm kind of dancing around a little bit because the conversation that this statement is embedded in is really caught up in criminal justice, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. But I will say that it does appear that Heinlein's theory here indicates that criminality is like a deformed kind of loyalty to self or community. It's a, it's a malformed sense of duty. Yeah, or, or a lack of that sense, right? And, and this is actually, I think, where Heinlein's Hobbesian view comes in again, right? Which is that he really does think that yeah, humans don't have a moral instinct, and so they have to be taught to be moral, right? That if we want humans to value cooperation and and to value living peacefully in a society so that we can have nice stuff, right? So that we can have uh, all of that uh, standard of living that is as high as productivity permits. If we want to have that, we have to have cooperation. And so therefore, we need a strong authority to teach us morality. And the best morality is a morality rooted in duty, duty to others, perhaps. And I think, think definitely actually in this book, duty to the state as well. And of course, right, that is what the education system is for in this world as well. That's exactly right. And uh, as I you know, said, I just belabored it a little bit. Heinlein ignores the question of how we get people motivated to perform their duties. And his method of motivation as revealed in this novel, in my reading, is really much more of a, using the stick rather than the carrot. And we do have this kind of broken down. The next section that we have is on the the justice system. Though also, we're going to talk about some parenting techniques in there as as well. So it'll come back to education. Uh, But we've got a little bit more to do here. We do. Yeah. When the government are the parents, I mean, yeah. What parenting advice do you really need? (laughs) Well, the the last claim here about morality is that uh, Heinlein makes the claim in this book. uh, And I, I talked about it at the top of the first part of this discussion is that moral philosophy is an exact science. History and moral philosophy is taught in the science department. Now, I'm just going to come right out and say that this is an indefensible indefensible claim. Uh, it's a misuse of the word science, perhaps. <laughs> in or- and, and I think Heinlein is doing this in order to get at something else, which what he's trying to say is that history and moral philosophy may be true. And if science is the only tool that we have in order to access truth, then you kind of have to use the word science here. Maybe he's painted himself into a corner, but I don't think that history and moral philosophy are true in the same way that science is true. Rather, these truths that we can learn from history or moral philosophy are revealed, as I suggested, through more pragmatic means, through their utility as ideas. Uh, even though the mode of investigating these ideas is similar to science with hypothesizing, looking for evidence, seeing if that evidence bears up under a hypothesis, developing theories, and so forth. As I said, Heinlein is rooted in what's called logical positivism. Uh, It's a kind of hard determinism in a sense. It's an intense belief, or so it seems to me, in the idea that if we can really map out every cause and effect maybe we'd be able to know, like really know everything that has ever happened and perhaps ever will ever happen. Perhaps we'd even be able to control, you know, certain neuron firings in our own brain in order to avoid undesirable actions and thoughts. 
essentially it's a claim that if we learn to model everything perfectly, we can reproduce that model in the real world and everything will be perfect. That's a whole other topic though, but, uh, the use of symbolic logic to prove claims made by history and moral philosophy courses is is really rooted in these kind of different conceptions of truth and the scientific method. All of which is is just bonkers to me. There's so much going on here that is that is wrong. I mean, one of the things that we've pointed out repeatedly is the extent to which so many of these monologues, these arguments, right? The monologues where these arguments are being made are rooted actually in semantic games, which is precisely the thing that symbolic logic is meant to get away from. <laughs> and we don't actually see any use of symbolic logic here in any of these arguments. And in fact, if we put many of them in symbolic logic, they I, they would not stand up to, to scrutiny. They might reveal themselves to be sound, though I have a hard time believing that, even though I haven't done the, the proofs, uh, but they would never be able to be proven to be valid. And I don't want to be too harsh on this here because Heinlein is you know, hardly the only person in this period to be thinking uh, in these terms. And and in fact, really, uh, philosophy in much of the 19th century and up until about this point, uh, the point of the writing of this book in the 20th century, was often uh, attempting to be a type of science, attempting to be scientific. This really grows out of the German tradition. So you get people like Hegel and Marx. Uh, we'll be talking about Marx again for sure. But Hegel and Marx are great examples of people who were doing a type of, of philosophy that was that was interested in you know, what does it mean to be a person? What does it mean to be in a community with other people? Right? How should we live our lives and so on? And approaching that though as if what they're doing is a type of science, it is something that can be tested uh, and proven correct and and that the experiments right the the testing can be duplicated and will always yield the same result and nobody today goes back and reads hegel as if he's doing a type of science or marx for that matter right we see these people as philosophers and not scientists but Heinlein's education came at a point when these people still would have been regarded or taken at their own word as having been attempting to do a type of of science. And so that's, I think, where this this comes in into the, the language here. But of course, Heinlein is also using this because he is promoting these views here and he wants his audience, his target audience, which certainly is teenage boys, he wants them to feel as if there is an actual authority to what he is stating here, that he he wants them to think that he's presenting conclusions when really he's actually presenting questions or, or premises, uh, as you said earlier, Brandon. Well, I think on that note, we can move into the, the second to last or sort of penultimate section here on our outline before we put this book back on the shelf. And, that's to, and that is to talk about the justice system. Uh, Heinlein also presents to us a vision of how the criminal justice system can be used to bring about this uh, utopia or this, you know, at least sort of best of all political systems, best of all societies that he's invented here in this novel. And this comes up, the, the criminal justice system, this comes up when Rico is in basic training and his unit has to execute one of the trainees. Uh, this is a person who had gone AWOL uh, and murdered a child uh, while he was AWOL. Wall. And this incident 
prompts Rico to think about whether or not capital punishment is a good idea. And he thinks back to his high school history and moral philosophy class. And so we end up with a real good dose of Dubois here. And in fact, this is actually where we learn about the terror that undid our own civilization. And Dubois makes a real point of saying that the terror happened even though our society, the society of us that we live in, America, I guess in the, the 20th century, so I don't know, our parents, our grandparents, but even though that society had more police, more lawyers, and more courts than Heinlein's Utopia does, still the terror happened there. And ultimately, what we get in this class session is that for Heinlein, the purpose of the criminal justice system is to prevent crime and to maintain order. And to that end, corporal punishment is the norm, meaning you know bodily punishment. So if you commit a crime, you get flogged in public. And if you are a parent of a child who is not yet an adult and that child commits a crime, you both get flogged in public. Or at least the father does. <laughs> Mothers might actually be exempt from this as maybe something else we can take up. But the idea here is that you get physical pain, you get visible scars to remind you of the flogging, and also you get the public shame. And Heinlein thinks that this treatment prevents crimes, right? People who maybe didn't care about going to jail for two or three years do care very much about avoiding this type of punishment in Heinlein's worldview. And so really, Brandon, the, the question is just this. Do you believe that? <laughs> do you believe that this would work? Right? Should we actually just be flogging people in public, get rid of the jails, get rid of all the other criminal justice apparatus and just flog people in public? Uh, no, uh, I, I do think that the abstract idea that Heinlein is thinking about here is how to wield retributive justice in order to bring about restoration, the restoration of the person back into the community. And this is made clear as Johnny is thinking about this, is thinking about this criminal in particular uh, who murdered the child and thinks either he couldn't be made well in which case he was better dead for his own sake and the safety of others, or he could be made well and then he could be restored to society in some way. So this is the that's the idea of restorative justice. It's like, how do we bring somebody who has violated our code of conduct, how do we make sure that they know they violated it and restore them back into the order of society, of our social system? The problem is, is that Heinlein seems to be advocating that we should just kill people who can't be made well. And this is a terrible idea. Our criminal justice system has insanity defenses for just this case, that insanity is something that cannot be controlled by the person. They are not responsible for their actions due to insanity. So we separate them from society both with the hope that perhaps they can get the help they need, but also because they cannot fit into society in some way. Public floggings and corporal punishment are retributive justice. It's about retribution because they give a concrete punishment to the crime that is equal to the crime, at least in theory, and then it acts as a deterrent for those who are watching who do not want to be punished in the same manner. So they are given a punishment, and then the whole matter is put to bed. These two ideas of justice, of how we treat criminals, of how we think about how to make things whole, of restoring something that was taken from us, which is an injustice, uh, which could happen on a societal level. How do we go about this? And these ideas are in constant tension with one another. And it's it's really hard 
to determine the degree to which retributive justice actually leads to restoration or how restorative justice actually allows that person to make up for the crime that they've committed, the injustice they've committed. But I will say this. I don't think public floggings or corporal punishment are good ideas in any (laughs) regard here. I don't know the research on this, but it seems extremely authoritarian where people are not motivated to do good or to avoid a life of crime because it's better to be in society where there are fewer criminals, a positive motivation. It seems like it's an extreme case of using, as I said, the stick here. And in this case, it's real rather than a carrot. It's a, it's maybe a poor incentive. And if you can withstand the pain, you know, the same way we have crimes that have fees associated with them. If you can afford to commit the crime, you can still commit the crime. Also, there's the matter of getting caught, There is no mention here of the kind of societal ills that lead to lives of crime. And that's not to suggest that every criminal is the result of uh, a society who has failed them. But for those who do commit crimes as the result of failure of society, this seems like a very poor way to treat them. So in short, the answer is no, I don't think this is a good idea, but I recognize the tensions that Heinlein is trying to iron out here, trying to understand. One thing I want to point out before I I really think about some of the things that you talked about here, Brandon, is that this really is the second place where we've seen pretty clear evidence, right? That that Heinlein is not interested in Christian values. And, and, you know, I did say that we weren't going to bring in outside information or think about other books that Heinlein wrote, but Heinlein was uh, largely an atheist and was in fact pretty hostile to religion. But this is clearly a place here where we see that Heinlein did not believe in redemption, just as he doesn't believe in chaplains being nonviolent, right? So the Christianity is really not shaping Heinlein's view here. Uh, and I think that this is actually a pretty important part of how he's envisioning this future and utopian criminal justice system is that it is not rooted in Christian values, that prisons are not penitentiaries. They're not places where people can go and be penitent and repent and come out reformed. He doesn't think that that's possible. And he thinks that we're better off without those values. I think that's pretty clear here. I agree. It's it's absolutely clear. But something you brought up here, Brandon, is, is whether or not this actually even would do a good job of actually preventing crime. And the answer is no, it would not. If we want to prevent crime from happening, this is actually not a good way to, to do that. At least not if we want to live in a liberal society, if we want to live in a society where people have civil and legal rights, if we want to live in an open society where people do things like uh, go out to bars with their friends on the, the weekend, uh, go out to restaurants, go to sh- shows, right? Have We have theaters and uh, performing arts and movie theaters and all that sort of stuff, all the things that we actually, you know, used to do with our lives before COVID, I suppose, <laughs> right? But if we if we want that life back, if we want that world back, then this type of punishment is not actually going to actively prevent crime. And there are there's lots of social science data about exactly this. And this falls into really sort of two categories. And, and one of them is simply that if you want to use the fear of punishment to get people to not commit a crime, that is only possible for crimes that are premeditated. Things, actions that people take after stopping, pausing, considering their action and the consequences of it, 
And many, many, many crimes, in fact, really most crimes that enter the criminal justice system are not crimes like that. Uh, There's so much data about the role of drugs and alcohol in violent crimes. So clearly then in that case, people are not in their rational mind when they're making choices and may not really be making choices at all at that point. And so the fear of punishment is not preventative there. Where fear of punishment does actually seem to work is white-collar crimes, because people who are committing white-collar crimes are doing that uh, shrewdly, that they're they're actually sitting down and making spreadsheets, uh, doing pretty, pretty lengthy uh, risk-benefit analyses before they commit their white collar crimes, you know, tax evasions, uh, uh, other types of fraud and and so on. And so this type of thing maybe does seem to work with white collar crimes. So if we do want to have floggings, I guess that might, you know, prevent the real estate uh, uh, market from, you know, collapsing again, like it did in 2008 or something like that. But it's not going to work uh, against things like vandalism. It's not going to work against drunk driving. It's not going to work against a whole host of things. The other side of this, though, is that even a lot of crimes that are premeditated, crimes against property in particular, so robbery, burglary, other types of theft, shoplifting, and so on, are done by people in dire circumstances. And so if we want to have those types of crimes not committed, this is where we do look to the organization and the functioning of society here, where we see the poverty is really at the root of so many of these types of crimes. And so not having poverty is actually a better way to avoid having these crimes. Because even if we switch from sending people to jail to flogging people, people are still going to say, yeah, but I need to eat right now. I need to make rent right now. And I might not get caught. And even if I do, well, I still ate before I got whipped and I need to eat. So this is not really, I think, going to be all that successful for something like that either. And in the data for our own society shows that that is, is the case. But of course, a big part of what Heinlein does in this section is have Dubois uh, go on a rant about how terrible social science is and, uh, and doesn't know what it's doing and actually presents all of that uh, as not being science, even though he's presenting then, you know, as we've talked about his own moral philosophy as being a type of science for him. This is actually all a type of charlatanism, right? That this is actually all pseudoscience, things like sociology and psychology. He does not regard as science. His moral philosophy though is well it's it's telling that he used such a a heinous crime as an example here something that like no rational person would commit and it, it feels as though what heinlein really wants to punish and correct for is irrational behavior this idea of being made well that Johnny thinks about in terms of the restorative side of the justice equation is really about we can re-educate this person to be rational again, to recognize that they that that what they did was an act that they should never repeat because it's irrational and whatever, that they can overcome their imp- evil impulses or whatever it is. But yeah, I, I agree with all the points you made. Um, I think you did a much better job of kind of summing up why why there's a problem here um, with, with Heinlein's ideation of how justice should be meted out by uh, a social institution. And the metaphor that... Heinlein uses here is really to equate people with dogs, right? The the example that he invokes to show why this is a good idea is to get Rico talking about how to raise a puppy. 
You're right. I mean, I've watched a lot of the Dog Whisperer, uh, <laughs> many many hours worth of it, and I am certain that while the concept of the touch, the the physical reinforcement of the command, is extremely useful and helpful in perhaps both the rearing of dogs and small children. It is not this to this degree. It is not an abuse. It is merely a physical reinforcement. It is a touch that associates the command that adds weight to it. It is not hitting or striking or anything like that. And I think Heinlein is just a little bit off the mark here. Yeah, this was not the method that I would use to raise a puppy. either right like this to me seemed abusive to a puppy and then he's also advocating that this is how parents should raise children and it is the way that the state should treat adults in the future and all of it just strikes me as abusive and it struck lots of people at the time that Heinlein was writing this as abusive as well which is why he has Dubois go on this rant against you know, therapists and sociologists and and so on uh, because he does really think he does he does really believe in spare the rod spoil the the child here but i think most of us today think that if we're just going around beating children as a form of discipline as a form of coercion uh we're really actually just creating traumatized people who are going to grow up thinking that violence is an acceptable thing to do is the way to resolve well the way to settle things i suppose (laughs) (laughs) well that's not showed up in this novel or conversation at all Well, all right, let's jump into the last topic that we've got here on looking at this book as a a type of political science fiction. And this is going to be Heinlein's economics. We don't get a whole lot on that, though though we've already talked about how uh, economic production is clearly one of Heinlein's core values and, and also something he thinks that government is meant to facilitate, even if what he envisions there is simply by by getting out of the way, by not uh, burdening businesses with too many taxes or, or regulations. But what we do get, I think, strongly suggests that Heinlein really is just envisioning industrial capitalism continuing on and on, even after the collapse of all, all these governments, every government in the world in the 20th century. Those all collapse, but this particular economic system continues on. And and one of the ways that we know that is simply that Rico's father is a rich industrialist. And there are three items I want to discuss here under this heading of economics. And the, the first of them is the Marxist theory of value. And I'm just going to read this speech from Dubois, and then we'll we'll talk about it. Here's what he says. The Marxian definition of value is ridiculous. All the work one cares to add will not turn a mud pie into an apple tart. It remains a mud pie. Value zero. By corollary, unskillful work can easily subtract value. An untalented cook can turn wholesome dough and fresh green apples, valuable already, into an inedible mess, value zero. Conversely, a great chef can fashion of those same materials a confection of greater value than a commonplace apple tart, with no more effort than an ordinary cook uses to prepare an ordinary sweet. These kitchen illustrations demolish the Marxian theory of value, the fallacy from which the entire magnificent fraud of communism derives, and illustrate the truth that the common sense definition has measured in terms of use. So here, Brandon, I guess the question is this. Do these kitchen illustrations demolish the Marxist theory of value? Do they actually stand up to any scrutiny at all? 
It's a really good question. We let's first let's specify that this Marxist theory of value is the labor theory of value, which states that the labor that goes into producing the good is the good's value. And Marx advocated for this so that the creators of the commodities could share in the gain of selling those commodities, right? So that it wasn't just all going to uh, increasing capital in the in the owner class, basically. I mean, roughly speaking, I'm very tired at this point, but I'm doing the best I can in trying to explain this. So this is the labor theory of value, which the work we put into something is the degree to which that thing's value can be determined. So Heinlein starts with this mud pie business, right? If you work to build a mud pie that does not create any sort of value. So labor by itself is not something that produces value. It's a good good point. Uh, it's a fair point, but I don't think anyone has in mind the fact that in an ideal, even communism, people are going to go around working and then forcing people to pay them for the commodities that nobody values. You have to have a theory of a commodity and of social value and social good and all this other stuff to go along with it. Right. Marx, as his premise, is taking here that someone has already hired you to do that work. And that's something that Dubois is ignoring here. Right. And that that person is going to benefit more from your work than you will from producing your late from the labor and the good that you produce. Man is increasingly alienated from the products of his labor. Right. This is kind of a Marxian idea. The next thing that Heinlein goes after here is the idea of natural inequalities that arise in different populations of people, such as the differences in intelligence, the differences in skill, the differences in talent. And should not those things be taken into account when we think about value? Uh, there, you know, There's that famous artist anecdote. The artist seems to change every time I try to look up which one it was, uh, where he, you know, the artist is in a coffee shop. He's sketching something. Somebody recognizes who the artist is, how much their work typically goes for on the market, and asks how much it's going to cost them to buy this sketch that the person made in five minutes in the coffee shop or whatever. And the price is exorbitant, let's say $20,000. And they say, why? It just took you five minutes to make. And he says, no, it took me a whole lifetime, right? So that is the degree to which labor goes into developing skill and talent that might create a situation where a highly skilled, intelligent, or talented person can do the work of someone who is not naturally gifted in those ways in a less amount of time. Does that mean that what they produced is of less value than the next person, right? So this is, this is a, an argument that a, a addresses that not everybody's equal. And that, that's a reality. And that's okay. People have different skills and abilities. That's why communities are important. Other people's strengths and talents can make up for our weaknesses and our strengths and talents and talents can make up for theirs as well. Uh, it's why I struggle with like Heinlein's extremely individualistic approach, how technology like the power armor is like the solve for actually a lot of problems here. So I don't think that that's a bad way in to look at the labor theory of value as well is to say that, hey, does a person get paid less because they're faster and better at doing their work because of natural inequalities that arise in any given population? So these are not two 
terrible ways to address what could be problems in the labor theory of value. So I do think that just on that surface, Heinlein is trying to make some points, but I don't think he's really addressing the full argument. He actually doesn't even lay out what Marx's argument is. He just attacks it from a perspective where he seems to not even want to address the argument in any sort of form. And that that's the real problem with this uh, attack on Marx's labor theory of value. We'll talk about, I think, the subjectivist theory of value, which he advocates for in probably just a moment. Right. So Heinlein is just not dealing with Marx fairly here. I mean, really just thinking from a rhetorical standpoint, as you say, Brandon, Heinlein is really creating a straw man to argue with, which is to say that he's inventing an argument that Marx didn't ever make and then disproving it, right? Marx never claimed that a person digging up mud and cooking it would magically make the mud worth money to somebody. Marx takes as a given that by work, he means labor that someone is paying you for, right? So the work has already inherent value to someone, even if we ourselves don't have any interest in buying this mud pie from that person who, for some reason, has been paying people to make mud pies for him, right? Still, that guy thinks that there's some value to that. And that's at the the premise there. So that's really a disingenuous way to engage with someone's arguments, an argument that you want to disprove. And look, Marx, as we said earlier, Marx is Marx was someone who thought that what he was doing was a type of science, and he definitely was not. And a lot of his theories, uh, his models of economic systems, have been shown to not bear out. Have been shown not to work. It's been you know almost two centuries, really, a century and a half or more since Marx was uh, began his career writing. And we know that so many of his conclusions are completely wrong, at least if we're regarding them as science, which he did want us to do. And so, but Heinlein is also here really just choosing not to engage with Marx then as a type of philosopher or as someone who is being someone who is critiquing a social system either, right? Because Marx's views really are more of a social critique of the capitalist system, and, and in particular, the capitalist system during the Industrial Revolution, where where really this, this theory of value that is connected to labor, right? This labor theory of value, the surplus labor theory of value. Marx really is using that just to point out that workers are not being paid well for their labor. And specifically, he's trying to show that because of new technologies, the amount of stuff that a worker produces in a factory over the course of a workday is now significantly higher than that worker could have produced on a farm a thousand years previously, or even a hundred years previously. But at the same time, that worker's pay has not gone up commensurate with that increase in production. So, hey, maybe workers should get paid more or they should have to work less. That's really the heart of Marx's argument. And Heinlein is just not even acknowledging that here. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. He he is ignoring, as I said, any type of engagement with what Marx was actually doing or what whether Marx realized he was doing it or not. If he was thinking of it as science, he was really saying, hey, there's real flaws in the way we've been thinking about capitalism since the Industrial Revolution or while it's taking place. And uh, people living in abject poverty, working in unsafe working conditions, being alienated from the product of their labor, just getting paid money, having no access maybe even to the goods that they're producing, that's not a recipe for anything good. Right. Let's let's talk about some of the other elements of of Heinlein's economics here. And and let's talk specifically about 
labor because Heinlein advocates for work, for, for labor as something that is inherently good for us to do, even if we don't have to do it. And so this might actually be a place where he really is is trying to grapple with with Marxism. There are two places in the text where this attitude is clear. The, the first is from Dubois. It's actually in the same section that we get this business about Marxism. Uh, Dubois is criticizing his students for coming from rich families uh, and therefore, right, because they come from wealth, uh, not really appreciating the things that they have. He says, if you boys and girls had to sweat for your toys, you would be happier. The, the second place where we get this is, is just Rico's father. This is actually after he has joined the mobile infantry because, you know, there's this total war happening here and got to fight the bugs. And this is, uh, and I'm just going to read another little sentence here. This is what Rico's father says about having a lot of work to do when his company started manufacturing for the war effort. He says, I felt better during that period, worked to death and too busy to see my therapist. And so, Brandon, I know that theories of labor and leisure, these are a real interest of yours. You've brought them up a number of times already while we've been been doing this. So really, I just want to let you take a run at this. What, what do you think about Heinlein's attitude about labor and what it's for and maybe how that's wrapped up in our mental health? There's no question that labor uh, and work and mental health are all intertwined. What Heinlein fails to encounter here. I think is the idea that meaningful work is what's good for you. Meaningless work is detrimental to well-being, and I think that's pretty well demonstrated. Uh, maybe both anecdotally on the on, you know on a personal level, maybe many of us can relate to that, but also on a, on a social level, uh, it's it's about meaning, and so. There's two types of work we do. Humans work, right? We labor over things, and. You know, we we have talked about leisure, and by leisure, we we we're not talking about idleness. We're not talking about binging, binge watching uh, series on Netflix, which is something we all do. That's not that's not leisure. That's just being idle. That's not doing anything. Leisure is really work or labor for something that is not in service to somebody else's use or that necessarily is about your productivity, social function, or social value. It is something that is free, that you can, not in terms of cost, but you do it freely. And I think there is a lot to commend to the idea that leisure, that type of labor, the free work we do to benefit ourselves for our enrichment, our edification, uh, to develop our skills and talents, to produce things that we love or like to produce and share them with others that maybe have no apparent social utility, that is good for us, right? Humans are workers. We're good at work. Uh, but when it's all meaningless, when we don't see the value in it, that is that is where the real problems, I think, show up. So Heinlein is, I think, like 40% right here. But I don't know what kind of meaningful label pe labor people are up to. The father's happy here because the work he's doing is in, in, in direct support of the war effort. And he thinks that's important when he's talking about this. And then he finds something more meaningful, which is to labor directly in service to the government. Leisure is not something that is really widely addressed in this novel. And I think Heinlein thinks that any work 
to keep ourselves busy so we're not thinking about what's wrong is kind of a solution to a lot of issues. And that's something I, I deeply disagree with. Yeah. Heinlein is very clearly here presenting a, a false dichotomy where we are either at work or we are just sitting around idly and having ennui about not having anything to do, about not having a purpose, not being fulfilled uh, by our activities. So what's missing here? Is any sense that there are things humans can do that are not making G jaws for people, or you know, whatever <laughs> doodads or wickets <laughs> right. or whatever, whatever it is guns. that we, whatever yeah. it is we do, yeah, guns, right? Uh, that we don't actually have to overproduce stuff. We don't just have to constantly be making stuff and then invent stupid jobs that are ancillary to that, just so that people can occupy their time, so that they won't be full of ennui. We don't have. There are other things we can do, like go to church. Uh, join a community theater, write a novel, <laughs> you know, right? Uh, all yep. sorts of things we could do to find meaning. And hey, actually, some of that might even be binge watch a TV show on Netflix, like with your family or with like your friends and get together afterwards and talk about it. Or hey, maybe you might read a uh, 50 year old science fiction novel and spend seven <laughs> hours talking to your best friend about it on a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Lots of things that we could do that give us meaning and purpose and fulfillment that are not making widgets and G-Jaws for people. We can do things with our time. And it's things, and here I can't emphasize this enough, things that are not in service to others. And that's a part of what it means to be free or live in a liberated society uh, or to, you know, to live freely is that we should be allowed to act in ways that are not in direct service or usefulness to other people. And Heinlein just does not seem to have a category for that idea in, in this novel. And that's real sad. This makes me actually feel kind of sorry for Heinlein, though he was obviously super productive, right? He, he just wrote and wrote and wrote. And maybe this actually just tells us more about Heinlein than it tells us really about society. Perhaps that's true, though. We'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Since we are only limiting ourselves to what is on the pages of this book. Well, we have come to nearly the end of the episode. There is one last item on uh, the list here of, of things we want to talk about in terms of this book as political science fiction. And it's here under this economics heading as well. And it is... Heinlein's critique of consumerism. So right after Rico's father is... Uh, well, really just describing mental illness as a symptom of having too much leisure time or too much idleness, he goes on to explain why he joined the military instead of staying home and managing his business, uh, a business that is actually now producing things for the war. And he says, I had to prove to myself that I was a man, not just a producing, consuming economic animal. And I think that we can also pair this up with Dubois' assertion that his students' extreme wealth is not really good for them. And we can see that although Heinlein is very clearly opposed to communism, a system in which right property is held in common where there, there is no private property, uh, Heinlein is opposed to that, but he and, and definitely in favor of industrial capitalism as a system of production and in favor of free markets as a system of exchange, right? Those are the things Heinlein is for. Even still, Heinlein is critical of aspects of the economic system that he sees around him in the U.S. in the 1950s, this, this growing consumerism following the Second World War. I think that this is a way that many people have, and maybe the only way within which they can express what I 
chalk up to essentially a loss of a cosmology. Uh, you mentioned that Heinlein is very harsh in his criticism, perhaps of religion uh, and Christianity, but then you can't just erase something you think is bad and expect that something good will rush into Philip's place. You need to have a clear picture of moving in a direction and not just delete things that are you think are bad in society and then be like, well, we did our job. Uh, and here is this problem with um, one of the problems th- with the total breakdown of big institutions that has led to you know the fragmentation I talked about earlier. But this is increasingly becoming a topic of public discourse in, in small philosophical circles. Uh, I, I brought this up on the show before. Um, in relation to Walker Percy, who was writing in the 70s, uh, but there's a, a Chinese philosopher named Yokui who was also uh, in, looking at this question of what do we replace a lost cosmology with? Because it appears as though more and more people feel as though they're living in an economic system, not a social system. And so what defines them is their status in the economy, not their role in any community or larger cosmological belief system. And uh, to prove to yourself that you're a man then here, or a person in this case, in the father's case, means to put yourself in direct subordination to the institution that's providing the most meaning right now, which happens to be the military. But in a world with competing and robust institutions and communities, I don't think this would be as much of a temptation. Right. And we've we've just been critical of Heinlein's theory of work and leisure and idleness here. But yet Heinlein then does turn around and say that consumerism is bad. And consumerism is actually what drives the economy that he is in favor of here, or at least is beginning to drive that uh, in a in a disproportionate way, a way that is 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 new, that is wrapped up in the new world order following the Second World War and the, the nascent Cold War at this point. And so it could seem, right, that he's talking out of both sides of his mouth here or trying to have his cake and eat it too. But I do actually think that these two views can be can be you know brought to to square here where Heinlein is critical of people who are just purchasing and purchasing and purchasing and maybe critical of an economy that runs off of that, but still thinks that idleness is bad. Uh, presumably, he thinks that idleness in his own society is what's leading to, you know, what he calls the terror, right? <laughs> you know, the <laughs> gangs and, and, you know, running around in parks and so on. It's just that these, these, these kids don't have anything to do. These young people don't have anything to do. And if they did, then society would be better. And I'm not sure that, we, you know, we necessarily disagree with that. In fact, we're big advocates of people having things to do, right? This is what we actually spend our leisure time doing is all of this type of work because it fulfills us and gives us some meaning and and gives us a community and so on. But what I find most interesting then about this is that Heinlein has this opportunity to write a book in which that's aimed at young people, aimed at adolescents, and could then say, here's what you should do to have meaning and purpose in your life, but writes it about going to war in a total war and committing acts of terrorism against foreign foreigners and not about, you know, like picking up the litter in your neighborhood or something else that might be productive, or at least something that wouldn't be about killing people. And I think that's a squandered opportunity. I think so too. His only idea of like 
value that a person can have is really in service to their government and uh, you know uh, an enterprising kid in a in a community might find hey let's plant a community garden let's start something good there's endless stories of people doing that Heinlein just simply does not have a theory of leisure and he does not have an explicit notion of the good he is just pointing out things that are bad and then saying, this is how we corrected them, but we haven't been able to get rid of quite all the bad. And what's left is people are feeling maybe bereft of meaning, but Hey, we have one institution that can at least still provide people with meaning. So if you're ever feeling that way, just join, just join that institution. Yeah. That, that's a terrible poster for recruiting purposes, I think. <laughs> but I think you know, if we really zoom out here, that I, I think something we can say about Heinlein's, certainly his depiction of this imaginary world here, but perhaps even his conception of the world he was living in at this point in the 1950s, he, he was really only seeing vertical relationships for people. People can only have relationships with institutions to which they belong. So it's either a business they work for or it's the state. And he doesn't show us any horizontal relationships here. There are no neighbors. There are no community organizations of of any sort in this book. There are only individuals and then these superstructures over them that there are no there are no groups of people treating with each other as equals and doing things together uh just you know hanging out there's no bowling leagues here there's no book clubs and that is a really bleak world right and so and for someone who is rabidly anti-marxist rabidly anti-communist this utopia he's envisioned here to my mind looks a lot more like the soviet union than it does actually the United States. And I don't think that's what Heinlein intended. No, we brought up a little bit in the last episode how much equivalence there is in the descriptions between the actions of the mobile infantry and the organization of the military and the way the bugs function and the the equivalences between the society where Heinlein can really only draw a difference in relation to individual choice and maybe the use of free will in some sense. And instead, he's he's really created two societies that look very similar on the surface of it, of, of the novel. And as we've said, of course, there's been a lot of response to this book by other science fiction writers, Orson Scott Card, Joe Haldeman are some of the writers that we've invoked here. Uh, you and I actually just did uh, recently on Elder Sign, we did a novella by Roger Zelazny, who's a contemporary of of this piece, a contemporary of, of Heinlein's, a younger contemporary that deals with actually some of these same issues, though in a very different way and in a certainly much truncated form. It's a novella called The Furies, and I'd, I'd really love to point people to, to that to see a kind of alternative way of engaging with some of these issues by someone who's writing science fiction around the same time as this. But uh, well, I think at this point, Brandon, it's, you know, it's taken us three episodes to get here, but I think it is time for a sort of final assessment of this book. We've been pretty critical of Heinlein, especially here, I think, in this, this second episode on this book as political science fiction. And maybe we've even come off as a little bit grumpy about this book, but we at many points in previous episodes have talked about how much we really love this book. So what is your final assessment of Starship Troopers? 
I look forward to the next time I read it, either I'm forced to or freely. I I still love this book. I, I think it's a masterpiece of a kind. Uh, and I really just have no problem reading things that I disagree with. I think it sharpens me uh, as, a, as a thinker, as a writer. Um, it forces me to evaluate the easy ways in which one can be seduced by simple theories and ideas about society. Uh, certainly this book was far more seductive for me, the ideas in it when I was you know, 20 than today. But there is still an allure that I feel when I read this book that I like to be reminded of. So I don't go down that path uh, and kind of reassess my own position, why I think what I think, uh, where it's coming from, uh, what I'm actually mad at in society or just failing to do myself. Uh, books like this are, are a great uh, tool, I think, in just self-reflection. But also, it's just a hell of a yarn. And it's a great book. And I, and I just really... Love it. So uh, I'm putting it back on the shelf and I'm going to look forward to the next time I pick it back up. What about with you, Glenn? This book is a masterpiece. It's an absolute masterpiece. And I think it should be required reading. I would love to do an entire semester long course that's just this book. It's just a humanities class where we read this book and we do what you and I just did, you know, here on the, these these episodes, uh, but in an even more detailed form. I don't know. Perhaps no one no one wants to sign up for that class. At least not people who've listened to these episodes. It's maybe, but to really <laughs> dig in to say, hey, look, let's actually go read Marx and let's go read some other some some classical economics as well, and let's just spend two weeks going through this this kitchen illustration here. I think it's an extremely useful book and would be an amazing tool for a class like that where we just go through these things and, and take them up. But I also think it is a brilliantly written, just expertly crafted book that has so much to offer for uh, just a really a variety of readers. I think this really is one of the best works of uh, science fiction, uh, maybe really one of the best works of American literature. And I do think everyone should read this book. And I hope that everyone does. And I, I hope that other people want to keep talking with us about this book as well. Yeah, I look forward to the ongoing conversations that we'll have uh, after these episodes air. Well, all right. I think on that note, I think that is going to do it for this episode and, and our entire series here on Starship Troopers. Uh, Brandon, I've got to say thank you to you for working through this masterpiece novel with me. This is something I've been wanting us to do for years, and it took us a long time to do it, but I'm so glad you, you came along for the ride. I am too. I'm really glad uh, I was able to do these series of episodes with you. I, as we said, I love this novel and going through it like this. Uh, maybe this is something that we used to dream dream of uh, on the ops floor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it is something we used to try to do uh, when we were at work together at two o'clock in the morning. But no one should be doing anything like this <laughs> at two o'clock in the morning, <laughs> the adult state like that. <laughs> Well, I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find me and all our other shows at claytemplemedia.com, including the two that I host with Brandon. These are Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast. That's where that Roger Zelazny novella, The Furies, is. I hope you'll check that out. And also the Gene Wolfe literary podcast as well. Gene Wolfe, we invoked in this series of episodes as well as being someone, again, kind of a younger contemporary of, of late Heinlein, but uh, maybe a successor to Heinlein, perhaps. Wolfe, also uh, a military veteran like Heinlein, a veteran of the, the Korean War, an enlisted person, not an officer. And Gene Wolfe wrote 
some political science fiction, wrote a lot of political science fiction in the early part of his career, and we have covered almost all of that over on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. So if you're uh, if you really are interested in political science fiction, we hope you'll go check out that show. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDormand, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. If you're interested in commissioning a bonus episode or, you know, three of your own, you can contact us there or any of our social media accounts, or you can email us directly at claytemplemedia at gmail.com. So I'm going to be back at the end of this month with yet another episode, a fourth episode this month. That is going to be about the new space opera novel, Revelation Space by Alastair Reynolds. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.